All right. Well, let's, let's get rolling here. Uh, we have today on actually four books, James, first and second Peter and Jude. And then next week we're doing the three letters from John and then the last week revelation. So you all start reading revelation. I may, I may send you, I think I'll send both, uh, lessons out so you can have the revelation when it maybe start reading it earlier because it's got a really thorough outline on there on on how to read it so um next week dana has a devotional so no, and nobody signed up today so let's start with a prayer and we'll get going so dear god i do give you thanks for seeing faces of people from westminster and uh, as we see the faces of each other continue to be with us as we um in the words of my wife's sermon title today, Hunker Down, in hopes of healing and in hopes of serving um, our wider community uh, by protecting ourselves and protecting them. Um, be with us in this hour that we may have a time of, of just relief and enjoy and, and exchange. In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen. Mm-hmm. So, um, it's, it has been two weeks, so I'm, I'm glad to see everybody back. Um, what, and what I, uh, what I want us to do is, uh, is, is we'll take the two full time and the bulk of our time will be spent first on James and then we'll probably take the break after we finish that, depending on how fast we go. And then on first Peter and then we'll spend a little bit of second, of less time on, on second Peter and Jude. But I will point out some some things involved there. Uh, probably of all these books, James is the most famous. It is kind of a, a popular book, uh, a little bit different than than other books in the Old Testament. So I'll start start with that one. Uh, the likely author of this book is James, the brother of Jesus, okay. and it is one of the books that sort of barely made it into the canon, and Martin Luther hated it. He thought it had no place in the canon at all. So I'm glad that Phil has joined us today, despite that, uh, with his affinity for Luther. But uh, the book of James has no reference to the life of Jesus, no reference to crucifixion, no reference to resurrection. And the name Jesus only appears in the book twice, once at the introduction and once uh, at the beginning of the second chapter. Um, like a lot of the letters that we are, I, I mean, all the letters that we are reading today, uh, they they are late in that they're among the, the, the latest letters written that were included in the New Testament. And I think that all of them, at least the first three, are written in a very elegant and sophisticated Greek style. So the Greek language had been developing, and the people that wrote them were likely of a of a really educated class, which, as an aside, is one reason that, that we think that the letter of Peter was probably not written by Peter, because Peter was a, was a common fisherman. But I don't think any of those things are, are terribly important. Uh, James is a is considered to be a general letter addressed to um, to general congregations. And it uses a lot of Greco-Roman forms of letter and and some features, uh, particularly that we'll see in the, in the chapter on Taming the Tongue, the use of, of metaphors of nature, of human activity, and, and to some extent from figures of the past. So it's really a richly read book, and it is a book that... Uh, 
I haven't spent a lot of time with in many years, but I, I know that I've done at least one sermon series on it way back in the 80s, and uh, it is a book that lay people often like and particularly like sermon series on because it is very practical and very behavior-oriented and just has some has some good themes on it. So I want to start with... Um, uh, let me let Colleen in. Let's see here. Can you also mute everyone, Larry? Yeah, I'm sorry. I should do that. Thanks, Catherine. I'm I'm out of practice here for a week. You know. Am I in or out? <laughs> you're you're in. Everybody's in. Yeah. Well, everybody I think appears to be in, but I am going to mute everybody now. Uh, okay. He's going to do. Yeah. So everybody should be muted and I'll unmute you as, as we, uh, when we get to discussion. So, um, I want to start with James 2, uh, 1 through 13. What I'm really going to do is just point out these themes to you and we can discuss them. There's, there's, uh, or, or I'll go through probably most of them before we then, then break and, and have a discussion. But, uh, James 2 is a way in which the author is criticizing um, the early church or people who show partiality to those who are wealthy. So at 2-1, I'm going to be not reading all the verses, but some of them. Uh, My brothers and sisters, again, addressed to the community, do you with your acts of favoritism really believe in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ? That's only the second reference to Christ in the book. And I just, again, like the language. For if a person with gold rings and in fine clothes comes into your assembly, and if a poor person in in dirty clothes comes in, and if you take notice of the one wearing the fine clothes and say, have a seat here, please, while the one who is poor, you say, stand here or sit at my feet, have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers and sisters. Has not God chosen the poor in the world to be rich in faith and to be heirs of the kingdom that he has promised to those who love him, but you have dishonored the poor? Um, one of the, the appeals of the book of James, again, in its practicality, is, is a focus on behavior. And probably the most famous verse in the book comes a little bit later, but it's faith without works is dead. Um, and part of that behavior, a good part of it that, that is probably the best known in the book is works among the many things that works are considered. There's an emphasis on caring for the poor, just direct care for the poor. And so this, uh, tendency in the community to show partiality to the rich is a part of that, um, or critiquing showing partiality to the rich is a part of that. It's also interesting because uh, the book has a lot of appeal in the church to individuals and individual behavior, just because it really is a to-do book. This is how you behave as a Christian. But it it has some really powerful and also a really powerful sense of the communal aspect of the people of God as a community. And this is one place because it starts off essentially, I think, critiquing uh, the ushers paying a little more attention to those who are well-dressed or big givers than those who come in 
not as well dressed and uh, off the street. Because again, part of that is just concern for the community as a whole. Um, this leads into in our, our similar theme is in chapter five, uh, which is labeled the arrogance and that arrogance and self confidence can separate the rich from God and lead to callous injustice. So uh, starting at, at five chapter, I mean, at five verse one. Come now, you rich people, weep and wail for the memory, for the miseries that are coming on you. And down at verse four, listen, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, cry out. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in pleasure. You have fattened your hearts. On a day of slaughter, you have condemned and murdered the righteous one who does not resist you. Um, it struck me reading this today that, that this is interesting in the last couple of weeks of, of the news in our country because it seems like uh, we have become more aware or there's been more publicity in the last few weeks about food workers and factory workers and the, and all the people that are working in the food delivery system, including, you know, whether that's harvesting and working in the fields or the meat packing plants in South Dakota. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, again, it's an interesting appreciation for, uh, for the gap between the, the rich and the poor. And that's definitely a theme in this book. Uh, and that's certainly something that has been in the consciousness of our culture and our political language, um, you know, really for about the last, you know, three or four election cycles. And this almost can sound like uh, an Old Testament prophet. I mean, this language is is almost right out of Micah or right out of Amos or right out of Hosea uh, and, and is a significant part of what James is talking about with, with works. Um, there are in in the next segment I've got uh two fourteen. Yeah, let me just read you. This is really the, the most famous verse in the book, probably. Um two uh I'm gonna read fourteen through eighteen. Uh, um, and this is really the faith without works is dead. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if you say you have faith but do not have works? Can faith save you? And that, that verse, and Phil, you can correct me on this, you know, if, if you know, but I would imagine that with Luther's emphasis on us being saved by grace and by, you know, faith alone, that that might be one reason he, he rather winced at, at this particular verse. Do you know, Phil? Yes, that is one of the reasons he doesn't like that that book. Okay, okay. I'm, you're my Luther scholar. It's rare in a Presbyterian church to have somebody who's an expert on Luther or, or into Luther as much. So I'm, I'm going to mute. Curious what Calvin thinks of it. I know, I know. So we've got the Calvinists around too. But now that I've given Luther the floor, I'll mute you again. <laughs> um, but anyway, continuing uh, with that, if 
picking up at 15, after can faith save you? If a brother or sister is naked and lacks daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and eat your fill, and yet you do not supply their bodily needs, what is the good of that? So faith by itself, if it has no works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without works. And I by my works will show you, I by my works will show you my faith. And then at verse 26, this theme, for just as the body without spirit is dead, so faith without works is also dead. Uh, and I can just say as, and, and I'll stop this here so we can, can have a little discussion that, uh, I just remember as a fired up teenager, you know, in, in high school and being at the Monterey Youth Conference and really being, uh, brought into the, not brought into the life of the church, but, but almost, almost having a, a conversion experience. And when you grow up in a suburban community and it's white in the South and it's segregated and you look around, I probably recited that verse 20 times, never positively. It was like a great weapon to my parents and any adult who I thought was, you know, being a hypocrite or was being, uh, you know, not doing enough, uh, uh, enough in society. So it is, it really is a great verse and it means a lot to people, uh, today, particularly people whose primary experience of the faith or, or a very important experience of the faith is hands on mission, feeding people, clothing people, building houses, you know, just taking care of the poor. That's a, that's a rallying cry and a theme verse. So let me unmute everybody and see if there's any questions or reactions to any of that. Yes, Marilyn. Marianne, I mean. Did this come, was this written before or after Paul? What's the consensus on it? It's later than Paul. It's more than likely later than Paul. Okay. Uh, As I... As I said in the introduction, all of these books that we're writing today are dated like in the first part, say 100 to 125. So they're, they're after Paul. Mm-hmm. How, uh, was there any discussion of, of them being part of official New Testament at some point? I mean, how did they get in these? Uh, Phil Mike can answer that better. I know that it was always contested. And my understanding is that Luther wanted it thrown out, that he called it a book of straw or a gospel of straw. So Phil, did you know? He called it the gospel of straw, but I don't know how it got in. Yeah. Uh, I I don't either, Marianne, but I, but I think it, I think it was always, uh, you know, there are some books that just snuck into the Bible or they got in by a closed vote. And I think, that James was one of them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. So. Right. It makes sense because, you know, I spent a lot of time in the Lutheran church, never heard any of this. Never, <laughs> pre- never preached. I never heard a preacher talk about yeah, it. Yeah, I'd forgotten that. I'd forgotten you were Lutheran. Yeah, it would not be high on the Lutheran canon. <laughs> okay. Okay. Got it. Other comments from anybody? Larry, I think that my experience with this is a lot like yours was of being a teenager in the South. Um, 
for this this portion, but also where it gets to later on talking about having to save people and having to and and there was there's a there's a verse in here about you know bringing people back to Christ and all and I feel like both James and First Peter were used a lot in high school circles to you know tell everybody you know, don't listen to any music that's not Christian music and you shouldn't be hanging out with these people who aren't Christians and you should, you know, you're going to have to, you know, stand on judgment day how many people you saved. And all of this was like coming straight out at me as I was reading this is all of those things I was exposed to teenagers in the South. That's good. I'm going to, I'm going to mute you all and then unmute you when you raise your hand. I think that'll be better. Uh, but I, uh, let's see. Yeah, I'll, I'll allow you to unmute yourself. Okay, Catherine, just unmute yourself. Okay. Sure. I, I, I had a similar experience with this when I did a service project in, with my high school youth group. That was sort of the, the, you know, core scripture. But I thought the note here was interesting that it was saying that it, it's not necessarily in dialogue, um, with, with Paul, that it's, um, that it's, it's it's like more of a theoretical conversation and and i i read it more of as like a not faith as we think about it in a larger way but but just sort of belief like the part that you that you didn't read he talks he says you know even the demons believe and shudder that that um i don't know he seems to be using faith more as sort of belief that it's not just you can't just sort of acknowledge that there is a god you can't just sort of acknowledge christ yeah like you have to you have to do something with that acknowledgement you have and and whether that's um you know here he is talking about it in terms of how we treat the poor but i think it's to me it seemed more um more global that it was it, yeah. it wasn't necessarily attacking the idea that that um that faith was uh, important, but that, uh, I don't know, it, it just, I, I thought it was, it was helpful to me to read that note to say that this, these two, these two ideas don't necessarily have to be in conflict. Right. Um, That's very good, Catherine. And, and I think we would ultimately say that, uh, I think the, and I realized that I started the, the conversation out with, with kind of its effect in high school, but I think, um, as I said earlier, one of the reasons that the book is so popular is it meets a very human need that particularly a lot of Protestants have of, of coming to church and wanting what I call a takeaway, you know, you know, some practical guidance to how to live in the world and just a reminder of that. And, and that's, that's another reason that it's valuable, you know, with adults and not, not just with idealistic youth, that it, that it is that way. And, and I'm aware, I've said this before, that, that, uh, my preaching tends to be elusive enough to where you don't get a lot of that, or you have to, you have to, uh, make your own application for that. And I can understand the, the people that just sort of, well, what's he telling me to do? Well, I don't know. I'm telling you to make up your mind, but, but people who want the minister to, to just be reminded, I'm supposed to go out and do this. It, it's a really good book for that. So in any other comments, anybody else want to say anything or as, as always, these are good, 
good comment you have. Um, so let's go, let's look at another chapter, which is actually by far my favorite chapter in the book, which is chapter three on taming the tongue. I mean, this is a, this is a great classic chapter. Um, and I'm just going to read it mainly because I love it so much. Uh, but this is a chapter where there are a lot of images of, from nature. I mean, the analogies that he draws and the, the metaphors that James uses for the tongue and for speech are really terrific. So, so let them wash in into you a minute, a minute and we'll, uh, you know, we'll enjoy this chapter. So. And it begins, not many of you should become teachers, my brothers and sisters, for we, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. And, and one of the things that I like about that is he's really talking about the responsibility of being a teacher in the community of faith. And, and that is something that will be important later in first and second Peter and in, in Jude, that there is a responsibility for those who are leaders within the Christian community for the content of what they teach. I mean, and, and I, I would also say that that's true of teachers in our society, public, private school, but, but I've, I've liked it for that, but then it, then it goes on. So for all of us make many mistakes. That's one of the truths the Bible (laughs) shares with us. Anyone who makes no mistake in speaking is perfect able to keep the whole body in check with a bridle. So the first image is that speaking is like the bridle on a horse. It it controls direction, motion, uh, you know, it's significant. If we put bits in the mouths of horses to make them obey us, we then guide their whole bodies. Or look at ships. He's now switched to another metaphor. Though they are, they are so large that it takes strong winds to drive them, yet they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs them. So also is the, so also the tongue is a small member like a rudder or like the bit in the mouth mouth of a horse, yet it boasts of great exploits. I mean, it's just, you know, I think it is so wise if you just think of when your tongue has gotten you in trouble, has gotten your whole body and being in trouble, and when your tongue has been healing. And, and your tongue is not something you can even see, but just the, you know, the, the beauty of the tongue and the power of the tongue to hurt or to take you down a path you don't want to go is, is just very, very wise. And so then he's going to, you know, now he's going to extend this metaphor of the tongue. Uh, how great a forest is set ablaze by a small fire and the tongue is a fire. The tongue is placed among our members as a world of iniquity, for it stains the whole body and it sets on fire the cycle of nature 
and is itself set on fire by hell. Man. Uh, for every species of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by the human species. We have dominion and control over every, virtually every species in creation. But no one can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. With it, we bless the Lord and Father, and with it, those we curse who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers and sisters, this ought not to be so. And and then he gets into some nature images. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and brackish water? Can a fig tree, my brothers and sisters, yield olives or a grapevine figs? No more can salt water yield flesh. I actually think those last images break down a little bit because he said earlier, from the same, from the same tongue, we can bless and curse. And that's, that's the experience of, you know, of most of us. But, um, what do you think about that? <laughs> Larry, this is Kurt. Kurt, yes, sir. I think it's spot on. I, I think one of the most powerful weapons in the world is is tongue and motivational as well as to hurt people. I mean, I've seen just people destroyed by somebody else's evil words and hurtful words, and it's just this really uh, this really strikes home. Yeah, it is. Thank you. Everybody's afraid to speak after hearing that passage read. (laughs) Um, I'm probably a little bit, uh, I don't know, biased or or it's special to me just because I, I mean, the older I've gotten, the more I'm aware that my business is really words. I mean, there's nothing else I have in my business but words you know, but, but speaking and, you know, I'm really, I'm, I'm aware. I'm probably not aware of all the times, but I am aware of times that I have said something in a sermon that was hurtful to somebody pastorally. I mean, that just, you know, whether intended or not, it was, it was a deadly poison. Um, and and I'll tell you a story in a in a minute. I'm also been you know I'm also aware as a parent the times that I just said the wrong thing, and it you know those are experiences. I I unfortunately remember those better than I remember the ones when I said the right thing, you know. And and I just I mean I love I appreciate language. I love language. I love its beauty. And this is just like enormously uh, powerful stuff to me and, and reminder stuff. I uh, The story that I tell along with this is I was a, uh, somebody, admit somebody in here. Um, good, Patience is here. Hello, Patience. Um, I, I think I've told you all before of, of 
the internship that I had in seminary was was under a, a really great preacher named Dr. Bob Walkup, who was in his he was only in his late fifties then, but he'd already had two heart attacks, and he had a he had an Everett Dirksen gravelly voice, which was very effective in the pulpit, and was uh, was not in good health. But and and this was serving a, a church in the Mississippi Delta, and there was a very distinguished older couple in that church who were the were wonderful and were the salt of the earth, named French and Mady McKnight. Those are Southern names. I know not many people from here are from the South, but those are Southern Mississippi Delta names. And they had, they, um, before I got there, Dr. Walkup, or or when I started, Dr. Walkup told me this story, which I'm sure he told to every intern. But he said that he had had an intern at some point before, a couple of years before, who had preached a sermon entitled, The Helping Hand Strikes Back. And the thesis of the sermon was that God who helps us gives us the back of his hand to punish us. And that was, you know, this young kid out of in seminary preaching that kind of theology. And Dr. Walkup told me, I'm sure as a way of warning me not to do this, that after the the intern preached that sermon, he took the young man aside and he said, I want you to go home tonight and get down on your knees and say thank you to God that French and Mady McKnight were not in worship today. Because 20 years ago, they had a daughter in nursing school in Memphis whom they went to visit in her apartment. And when they got home, they called to say they had gotten home and she didn't answer and she didn't answer and she didn't answer. And she was found murdered in her apartment, you know, the next morning or the next day. And I saw a special on the news. I happened to see a special on the news when I was there because it was the 20th anniversary. It was and remains to this day an unsolved crime. And what Walkup was saying to that young minister is, you know, you don't preach like that because of the damage it could do. And and he's right. I mean, it's just, you know, it was a, I mean, I'll never forget that story. You know, and it was a great sort of secondary way of teaching every intern that came afterwards what not to do. So sorry to put a damper on the evening, but you know, it, it was, it was, uh, it is a story about the power of the tongue, which is real. So Larry. Yes. Judith. Yes. Um, I just, I feel um, like what you're saying, what I thought about this is that we so often try to separate words and actions, but this really makes it clear that speech is action. Yeah. And that you, you can't, we can't really say 
well, I said it, but I didn't do anything, or I said it, and I didn't mean anything, because speech is action. Right, right. And it, I mean, it it challenges that old children's rhyme of, you know, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words can never hurt me. That's not true. You know, I mean, that's not true. They can hurt us. So they can also bless us. And that's, you know, that's the, I mean, you look at, and to, you know, to be, I'd rather be, be blunt in this class. I mean, I happened to be preaching a series on this in the summer of 2016. And it was challenging. I mean, I, you know, because that's a time in which the quality of our public speech got worse. And it, you know, it continues to be that. And yet you look at, in all fairness, you look at, at political leaders who say the right thing at the right time. And it is enormously healing for a country. You know, if you just, if you think of, there's not that many examples of it in our history, but it's, but it's true. I mean, I mean, the right word publicly or the right word even privately, you know, in a family or in a conversation can just be healing in a way that's never forgotten. You know, so, so this text invites us to think of those as well. Carol, were you going to say something or no, anybody? I mean, if you just, just think of what might be the most healing word that's ever been said to you, you know, by a parent or by, by anybody for that matter. And that, that's this passage, uh, and, and Larry, this is Stephanie. Right now, I think all of us need some of that. I'm amazed at the outpouring of friends, some of whom I haven't seen in years, who are calling to ask for healing and comfort and because of such uncertain times. Yeah. And it is, uh, I, I mean, I'm, I'm a, you know, the last person on the face of the earth that won't be on Facebook, but I do know that one of its values is that people are connecting and hearing healing words when, you know, from people that they haven't seen or 20 or th- haven't seen in 20 or 30 years. They're also seeing bile, but I'm not sure how much bile is on Facebook as much as Twitter and things like that. But it's, you know, all of this is just about the power of words. So it's, it's a great, it, it really is a great book in that regard. And, and one more comment, Larry. Yeah. I loved the comment in the uh, footnote three, Colon uh, two five to Antigone, the Sophoclean, the ancient Greek tragedy Antigone, which is one of the most brilliant tragedies out there. That tragedy where the uncle essentially assigns his niece to death for what she did, which was the right thing to have her brother uh, killed in war, buried, and it ends up bringing tragedy on everyone. But his words, which he tries to take back, are too late. Yeah, yeah. In, in the in the tragedy Antigone. Yeah. So I'll close on a, on a lighter but truer note. One of the famous, ch- Catherine, have you ever seen this children's sermon done where you, you know, the minister comes out and all the kids gather around and there's a bowl and a tube of toothpaste and he squeezes or she squeezes the toothpaste. Judy, have you seen this into the, oh, isn't this fun? We'll just squeeze this toothpaste out on the paper or out in the bowl. And then 
the minister stops and says, who can put it back? And you can't. And that's, that's what a word is. That once it's spoken, it, you know, it, no matter how many times you apologize to your spouse, oh, I didn't mean it that way. That's not what I meant to say. It doesn't work. <laughs> you can't bring it back. It just doesn't happen. So, all right. That's probably enough on that. Let's look at, um, I think what I'll do is go to, uh, the last part, which is James 5, 13 to 20. Um, mainly because there's, the other things are, are on this theme, but James 5 is, is an interesting, um, call as valuable as this, um, book is about individual behavior and, the, and some of the wisdom of individual behavior. In, in chapter five, there is also a really communal dimension to this. So I want to read starting at verse 13 to 20 and just talk a, a little bit about that and then we'll, that'll be it for James. Uh, the writer is saying, are there, I'm starting at verse 13, are there any among you who are suffering? They should pray. Are any cheerful? They should sing songs of praise. Are any among you sick? They should call for the elders of the church and have them pray over them, anointing them with oil in the name of the Lord. The prayer of faith will save the sick, and the Lord will raise them up, and anyone who has committed sins will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. The prayer of the righteous is powerful and effective. Elijah was a human being like us, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain for three years and six months, and it didn't rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth yielded its harvest. My brothers and sisters, if anyone is among you who wanders from the truth and is brought back by another, you should know that whoever brings back a sinner from wandering will save the sinner's soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Um, I, when I served in the Midwest, um, there were people who had come to the Presbyterian church from like the Christian Reformed Church, which is a, a pretty tight knit um, more conservative denomination out of the Reformed Church. And I loved having them in the church because they always came, they always believed in the community, and they always tithed or believed that they should tithe. They were very communally oriented. And I remember talking to this young adult who was about 27 or 28, and when he went home to visit his parents, he was married, you know, from a small town in Iowa. And when he went home and visited his parents, he said the elders of the church that he grew up in would always come visit to ask and make sure that he had found a church home. And it was a, it was not, I mean, it was a beautiful thing the way he accepted it and experienced that. And this passage sort of expresses that as its best. There are religious communities and, and 
Tom Jarvis in our church is, is from one of them. He was, was raised in a Quaker community in North Carolina where the whole town is Quaker. And he's sort of the one kid that left. Tom is my age now, but he still has these very deep ties to that community. And, and he does not experience that, you know, their care and their knowing and asking about his life as being nosiness. For the most part, we Presbyterians are arm's length away from this. I mean, we're so into privacy and the, and the dignity of the individual. I mean, we would never ask anybody, well, are you going to church? I mean, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's a weird thing, but there is a beauty to this and coming from a book that, that stresses so much individual behavior. It, it's neat to see when you're sick, call the elders and ask them to pray for you. Confess your sins. You will be forgiven. You know, if somebody, I mean, I got a prayer card once when I was an intern in Brooklyn <laughs> where one of the older women in the church submitted a prayer card. and We used to read them out loud. I, I've never done that since. I didn't read this one out loud, but, but her, uh, her prayer was, please pray for my son, Joe, that he may find himself and his Lord. You know, it's a beautiful mother's concern for her grown son, but I'm not going to read that in church. <laughs> you know, it's just, we're so private, but, but this has a, a communal aspect that, that has a beauty to it. Uh, if anybody wanders from the truth and is brought back by another, uh, you save that sinner's soul from death. I mean, it's, it's neat, but it's different. <laughs> it's different than by and large what, what we experience. So, but I think we probably have lost, lost something by not having a slightly deeper appreciation for that. So, so comments, questions, reaction to that. Marianne, yeah, unmute yourself. Uh, anointing of the Catholic, um, and the Catholic, the last sacrament, you know, the, is this where it comes from to anoint the body before? I mean, it's a big deal to make sure the body's right. It, it, yeah, it probably is. I mean, it, it probably comes from other places too, but that would certainly be consistent with with the practice there. And we've, you know, in the, in mainline churches, we've, we have sort of adopted anointing. I mean, we do Ash Wednesday now and we'll do prayer services where people are anointed. And, um, mm-hmm. but, but that was not the case 50 or 60 years ago. You wouldn't be caught dead with oil on your, on your, on your finger or your forehead 50 or 60 years ago. All right. Thank you. Yeah. Somebody else. Oh, that was Marianne. Anybody, yeah, Catherine, unmute yourself. Yeah, I was just going to say that I, I really, um, this book I thought it was interesting that you said it was really instructive and that, but very different than the rest. And I, and I felt that way when I read it. And I, I enjoyed that it was, it was instructive, but in a way that was so much oriented toward care. Whereas I feel yes. like the instructive parts of Paul and the Pauline letters are oriented toward order. Like that all the household codes are about like how we, how we, how we maintain our structure and our hierarchy 
and the, and you know make everything orderly. And this was much more about sort of wisdom and care and how we make sure that that we are taking care of other people and that we are not with our words hurting other people. And I yeah. I just think I mean it's a beautiful book in that way in that orientation. That really is a good comment, Catherine. I mean that that's terrific. And I think that is fair to Paul, but also fair here. And maybe that's, that may be a reason that this really is a popular book because, uh, uh, the care and, and the care here is, is care for the poor and it's care for the people in the community. It's care for your fellow church members. Uh, I had a, again, I keep telling stories, but there was a really, good clerk of session that that I served with in my Iowa congregation who was an enormously reserved person was a school had been a school superintendent in several communities in the midwest and and he um, over about a three year period had died of cancer and he and I had were at crosswise a fair number of times but we really respected each other and I remember getting tearful when I made my last visit to him uh uh, he wasn't, but I was, I mean, he was so stoic and so strong, but, but he told me that he and his wife and the way they were brought up never felt that they should call for care, you know, from the church or from the deacons or anybody. I mean, they just, it was that old, it was that Midwestern, you know, you take care of yourself, you know, you, and, and I've always thought how th- there was a tragic loss that, that they couldn't do that. But but this chapter is um, is so different than that. And yet Marvin, the man I'm talking about, I mean, you could not have asked for a person of better character and just, you know, a, a really terrific human being. But they just could not fathom how you would ask a stranger, you know, ask somebody other than your family for for, for care. And I, I think one of the good things about Westminster is that we ask for care. <laughs> we care all over the place. And that's one of the values of nobody having extended family here. You know, we're all strangers and sojourners in this community. So we know the value of care. So. Larry? Yes, Judith. Judith. Um, one of the things I don't think it's mentioned here, but you know, you were telling this story about this man in the Midwest. Dana and I had, um, a young relative, she was in her 30s, a young child, and she um, she had breast cancer, and it was clear that it was becoming terminal. And Dana reached out to her and said, is there anything we can do for you? And she said, yes, I want to learn how to play the piano, and I would like these two books. And it makes me want to cry even remembering it, because the gift was purely to us. I mean, we, of course, immediately ordered the books, had them sent to her. But just remembering how incredible we felt that she had given us the gift of accepting um, our support. And I, you know, I think about this man that you described and we can all we can all think of dozens of people in our lives who are like that. And of course, they lose out on the support that they could get, but they also 
fail to offer the gift to others of, you know, of being able to give. It really is. Yeah. It really is an, a critical part of that two-way street. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. And and that's something that I mean, many of you in this class have been deacons before at Westminster and other churches, and um, when deacons often first go and visit a senior citizen, go to a retirement home or get assigned to a senior citizen, or especially when they go and serve communion to to somebody that's a shut-in. It is eye-opening, you know, and just, I mean, they come back just moved at what a gift it was to be able to do that. And, you know, we have some you know, 30 something military guys that are deacons and they'll go and serve, uh, with another deacon to, you know, to a shut in. And they just, they just come back deeply, deeply moved by that, by that aspect of giving. And that, that's why it really is communal. So, uh, anyway, well, thank y'all. Is there anything else about James that anybody, that anybody wants to say other than Phil? Do you agree it should be in the canon? Yes, I do. Thank you. I, di- I disagree with Luther on this point. It is God's word. Remember the arm that is reaching out to the wrist of the scribe. And God reached out and it's there and it stays. That's good. This is being recorded too. So, you know, I've got you on tape saying that. That's okay. All right. Anybody else want to say anything about any of Larry? that? Larry? Yes. Um, uh, backing up and folding back in a little bit, and there have been some other really good comments, so I'm not sure I'll be that, um, clear. You'll be fine. <laughs> but one of my questions is that as we think of the importance of what we say and of what we do, we also have to think of forgiveness and that's part of trying to follow Christ because in my opinion or my understanding I should say uh, which may be flawed but that's what this is about so sometimes the forgiveness has to come from somebody who maybe has received a reprimand or something unkind and cannot forgive and is it not still worth our effort to still uh, say that we are sorry and still recognize and try to find the words and if we look to Christ to help us he may help us find the words that might ameliorate a very difficult or even alarming situation. So I, I just, you know, I think it's broader than, I mean, the faith really has to be back there in your head, not just up here in what we're reading and saying. This is again, not very well thought out, but 
I just want to say that because I'm not very good at any of this, but it's what I understand Christianity to be. Yeah. No, that's very good. And it, it also says that it truly is faith and works together. I mean, which is the, the best theme of the book. And, and I'm reminded, I'll, and then I'll recognize Frank in, in 516 that we read, it says, uh, the prayer of faith will save the sick. The Lord will raise them up. Any, anyone who has committed sins will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. So there is a promise that forgiveness can happen. And I, I mean, I've seen that as a parent too. So thank you for saying that. So one more, Frank, go ahead. Uh, I know that uh, James tells us that our tongues are set on fire by hell. Uh, I think in 2020, uh, I found uh, just as likely that my thumbs are also set on fire by hell. Uh, emailing will be the end of this all. Uh, I, ha- I have found in, in personal experience, both as a giver and receiver, uh, that uh, uh, one needs to have the spirit of the Lord upon oneself at all times when uh, writing for personal or for business and for any any purpose uh, right. because of its uh, capability to be um, interpreted awry. And uh, uh, I'll just leave it at that uh, from someone who's done both. Maybe we should... Uh... Maybe we should have one of those things that it doesn't just come up and check grammar and uh, spelling, but also civility or sort of, are you sure you want to say it that way? That would be helpful. Let's or, or, or an automatic three minute delay. That's true too. Or a forced rereading. <laughs> well, Lincoln used to, uh, perhaps possibly, uh, completely strafe his foes in writing. Frank, I muted you because all we're getting is a very loud, uh, gravelly explosion. Okay. So we'll try it later. All right. Well, let's take a break. Uh, Judy, what kind of cookies do you have for us today? Um, they're virtual cookies. You're going to have to live with that. All right. All right. Hello, Janet. Welcome. So let's take about, uh, yeah, seven minutes. Let's be back definitely by 510. Okay. Ready to go. Thank you. So, and everybody is muted, so. Everybody's hiding behind their names now. <laughs> People are hiding behind their names. It's all right. It provides privacy, so. Um, what I want to do, I do, yeah, let's go ahead and get started. Um, what we're going to do now is move to, to second, I mean, to first Peter and, um, we, we've got interesting, we're going to have some interesting discussions here on, on these next three books. And part of it is because there will be, we spend a lot of times talking, talking about words and the power of words from James. And in the, and in first Peter, we're going to see a book that has some very beautiful and vaulted language that's wonderful. And then that's got some of the harshest language or hardest language to deal with are really about slaves and, and women. So we've got, uh, you know, we've got, it'll be interesting to see where we go with that. Um, 
And then secondly, in Second Peter, we're going to talk a little bit about the second coming, but also um, kind of the role of Scripture, which I think in a, in a way connects um, connects James and connects some of the discussion we'll have in First Peter. And then we'll end with uh, Jude, which also has some interesting, uh, raises interesting issue about words because the book of Jude has a very definite sense of, um, of the punishing aspect of God or the discipline aspect, aspect of God and, and calling people to faith that way. So we've got a lot to talk about here. Um, in first Peter, the, um, it is one of the most beautiful and compelling New Testament books and it's not particularly known. We just kind of get we don't pay a lot of attention to these books towards the end, end of the Bible. But what it has, it, it says on your handout, I'm sure, that it has a profound uh, Christology and vision of the church. And what I mean by profound Christology is that that the word Christology is literally the study of Christ, or it is the it is the understanding that the church has of Christ, of who Jesus Christ is. And so a profound or a high Christology would be a, would be a view of Christ that very much emphasizes his divinity and his divine origins. That's generally what high, high Christology means or high church means. And so what we have in first Peter is a book that is definitely written to Christians in the context of persecution of persecution that that in some ways is state authorized on our on our trip to Israel we saw you know places and sites where where Christians were systematically persecuted by the Romans but but the sources I'm using are also saying that it's really hard to just um, I mean to look back and say that every ruler in every domain in every location for you know 75 years persecuted christians that that some of that persecution was episodic or it was due to to really local rulers or like a local sheriff you know gone awry or something it was it was uneven but it was still a real thing that the christians to whom this this letter was written were worried about and and experienced and new people who had died or, or who had suffered greatly um, from persecution. Uh, and, and it's interesting because basically what the book does is exhort the audience to have strength and courage in facing persecution, but based on this high Christology of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So it, it, it links, you know, it's dealing with persecution at the most painful and lowest level, but its solution to that is focus on, on the highness of Christ, including his, his death and resurrection and glorification. And it, and along with that, it has a lot of assurances of salvation, reminders of hope and reminders of fulfillment of, of God's promises to Israel. Um, so it it never denies that Christians are in danger or that it's like the writer is saying, you know, if I'm talking to Mark and Jan, yes, Mark and Jan, you all are being persecuted. And the way to 
to respond to that is to always keep your integrity, to always be peaceful, to always speak the truth, to always have courage, and to link that courage to the highness of the birth and death and resurrection and ascension of Christ. That's what you link yourself to, and that's what keeps you going. And it may mean there's no assurance that, that you're not going to die for your faith, but there is assurance that you will be with God forever. I mean, that, that's sort of the approach that this book takes. So it's, it's, it's neat and encouraging in, in that regard. So let me give you a sense. If you'll turn to chapter three, verses 14 to 17 is a really good passage where you see both the, you see more of the, of the call to courage than anything here, but, but also the seriousness of, of, and the highness of Christ. So at 314, it says, even if you do suffer for what is doing right, you are blessed. Do not what, do not fear what they fear and do not be intimidated. If you can imagine writing this to someone who's who's being persecuted, or hearing it if you're persecuted. But in your heart, sanctify Christ as Lord. Always be ready to make your defense to anyone who demands from you an account of the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and reverence. Keep your conscience clear so that when you are maligned, those who abuse you for your good conduct in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good if suffering should be God's will than to suffer because you're doing evil or doing wrong. I'm sure that these words were often used in the early uh, training of civil rights workers, of, of, of pacifists and the uh, um, you know, Martin Luther King's just whole approach to the, uh, to the students going out and sitting at the lunch counters and, and boarding the buses of, of keep your conscience clear and even when you are persecuted, uh, you know, respond with, with good conduct. Um, and, and it is, I mean, they're very, they're very heavy and, and the challenging words to, to respond to the there's another another verse in this that somewhat famous is is that always be ready to make your defense to anyone who demands for you an account of the hope that is in you it's kind of a long sentence but but that verse is sometimes used i, I sort of see time it used as a as a free-floating verse particularly in today's world of of encouraging christians to be willing to give a defense or an account of their faith, and not just Christians, but it can apply to, to people of, to Jewish or any faith, to, you know, when you're sort of challenged, do you really believe that? I mean, why, why are you really involved in that church stuff? Why are you really, you know, what's behind all that? Uh, of, of responding with an account of what you believe, of why you have hope. And, and I have seen that, you, you know, used that way by people. Um, to go just a little further into the the uh, 
the strong Christological language, the next section, which moves back in your Bible to chapter one. I want to read some of this just to see, get, get a flavor from the author. Judy, you've got a big cat. <laughs> of the vaultedness with which the, the author believes uh, in, in Christ. Uh, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. By his great mercy, he's given us a new birth into a living hope. I mean, these are great words. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Into an an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. And then down at seven, so that the genuineness of your faith being more precious than gold, though it is perishable, is tested by fire. I think though gold is perishable, is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. And then down in verse 12, it's revealed to them that they are serving not themselves but you in regard to the things that have now been announced to you through those who brought you good news by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look or dare to look. Again, it's very vaulted language about Christ. And it then leads to an equally vaulted vision with wonderful language about the people of God. And and uh, again, apart from this, I've, I've just heard this used a lot, kind of used a lot at, at youth retreats. But listen to the to the power and beauty of these words describing the church. Come to Christ. I mean, I'm at chapter two, verse four. Uh, Come to Christ, a living stone, though rejected by mortals, yet chosen and precious in God's sight. And like living stones, you let yourself be built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And then fast forward down to verse, or yeah, to verse nine. And this is kind of a famous verse. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's own people, in order that you may proclaim the mighty acts of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. But that concept of chosen race, royal people, holy nation, God's own people, again, is is vaulted language. So if you see the movement in the book so far, it is it is an acknowledgement of persecution and a call to uh, to respond truthfully but civilly, to remain in control, to keep your integrity. But to do that because you are linked to this vaulted Christ, this uplifted Christ, this high figure, and that you are part of the church, which is also this high and, and vaulted 
uh, creation of Christ. So it's, it's very consistent and beautiful. And, and I think what I want to say and then, then get, get some feedback. Um, it, it's interesting because I, I don't know how many of y'all have been watching the Friday devotionals that, that we've been doing, but our, our basic pattern is to have the four clergy do them on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday, and then Ben does them on Friday. And, uh, Ben, you know, was raised Southern Baptist and spent a lot of time in Christian church. And then he came to us from an Episcopal church, but his devotionals are always, you know, music and, and vaulted. I mean, it's just a, it's, it's an uplifting view of the church and it's like Ben's, Ben's music and leadership and liturgy that's so beautiful in the Episcopal church sort of floats in heaven above the earth and the other four of us are talking about gee how are you going to survive this with your kids or what are you doing about loneliness or you know we're we're very jamesy and very practical about you know about our faith and it, it just reminds me that there are traditions in christianity of which presbyterians not really one but but certainly the best of Roman Catholicism is the best of the Orthodox churches are those of you with Orthodox backgrounds and, 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 and actually the best of Episcopalian is where you, you sort of walk into these worship services and you realize that you've left earth behind and taken three or four steps up into the heavenly realm. And yeah, you're going to have to go down eventually, but, but for a moment you're up here and that's sort of, I mean, in those traditions, this language would be, would be very much at home. And when we, uh, you know, we, our former music director, Paul Stitsenko became, as did some of, some of people in our church, just really involved in the Orthodox tradition. And, and I have very mixed feelings about that tradition, but the good of that tradition is their worship service, their language, their teaching, is always the same and it has nothing to do with what's going on on earth. It's just like you walk into this eternal prayer and who cares what's going on in the world, you know, because you're up here and there's a sense in which, in which that's going on here. And I think the best of this for us, and then I'll stop is that, uh, I, I, for some reason I've been, I've just had a little more exposure recently to, to thinking, well, I've been reading, I've been reading Robert Caro's book, books on LBJ and the whole history of that period. Uh, about 3,000 pages. I'm about 60% through, but I've been reading a lot about just the civil rights movement, which was going on prior to and during Johnson's time in the Senate. Uh, and just how much those workers, those, those early civil rights people really had been to the mountaintop and that that's what gave them the courage to do and to suffer what they did. And it is, it's wonderfully admirable from here. And it is so far from our experience, you know, that I just, all I could do is sit back and admire it. 
and then go and do a Sunday morning devotional on, well, how are you doing this week? You know, how's it going with the kids? You know, have you figured out how to go to the grocery and find toilet paper yet without stomping over your neighbor? I mean, that's sort of the, the realm we live in. So I've said plenty. Who wants to talk or react or say something? Get me off my jabbering. Larry, if you don't mind. No, I don't at all. Who's that? <laughs> oh, Dana. Okay, good. Hi. Um, the first thing is that when you were reading, uh, when you get to the part that, yes, it's familiar and everything, but all about the chosen and everything, I find a very difficult um to relate to that. And, uh, and if I might connect it, it's not that I think it's wrong. It's, it's just that it gets a little too close to me and it, I don't know it, it frightens me or something. And in the same sort of way, when you brought up the devotionals, I've been really enjoying them. Um, but I must admit, and I'm crazy about Ben and I love all that he brings to the church. And at the same time, when the others of you are giving your devotions, I feel so much more connected. But the fact that Ben does, and I've, I've been at those churches, as I'm sure all of us or many of us have anyway, where the liturgy is high and I find, I've found it very beautiful. But the fact that he is right there and his face is very, intimate even though it's virtual um connected that it's almost hearing those things is almost too much well it is too much for me it's i'm trying to feel as comfortable as i feel when i'm in a a church setting when those words are said Hmm. that's interesting yeah we're all uh beginners at this and you know Somebody said, oh, all of you all are getting better week by week in front of the camera. I don't know what that means, <laughs> but it's, you know, it's a weird experience for all of us. So I, I don't know. Yeah. And, and, but I, I guess it's just the intimacy of yeah. some of these, these words are, um, I, I, I'm not prepared for them and that it just gives me a lot to think about. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you are with the name, uh, Van Beaver, that's a, that's a reformed Protestant name that goes back 9,000 years probably. <laughs> so it's in your blood, but, uh. It is, but it's not in, in a, in a, let's, let's be up close and talk about this. Right. <laughs> okay. You're good Presbyterian. <laughs> Social distance. We invented, we invented the reality. Hey, there you go. There you go. Society's just caught up with the term. The terminology's just caught up to who we are. So yeah, Roger. Um, I, I just wanted to mention to you that I was struck by your favorite word, therefore. Yes. Uh, and that really helped me through the first couple of chapters. Um, you know, because I, it, it was that the first half of that first chapter is so beautiful and such a, you know, wonderful description of what we believe. Um, and then the therefore comes and, you know, so prepare yourself because yeah. based on what you believe, this is where it's going to all go. And yeah. I, I thought that was, uh, so I, I, that was helpful in trying to understand that. The other just, just, um, probably unrelated sort of comment I would make 
is that in our church in Plattsburgh, when we did our capital fundraising, we called it the Living Stones. Yeah. And uh, I don't know if that's a common thing or not, but I thought it was a very, very um, uh, helpful way of visualizing what it was we were trying to do in, in expanding yeah. not only our physical church, but our, our church programming. Yeah. The reality is there's not a whole lot of, of verses or, or sections of the Bible that you can really draw on for images of the church, and this is one of them. So, so it is. I mean, that, that's very appropriate. Other comments or reactions so far? Larry? Yes. Um, yeah, I think it's interesting that it says that you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, and a holy nation. He's talking now about the Gentiles, is he not? Um, he's not talking about just the Jewish people. He's talking Correct. About he's talking about the church, yeah. The church. Yeah. And I think that's... We take that granted for day, today, but that is very revolutionary that now everyone has that potential of being chosen. Yes. Like these, these books are, are sort of borderline universalistic, but they're definitely, you know, if you believe you're in, I mean, yeah. with the openness to that, we want you to believe so, so that you'll, you'll be included. So. Good. Anybody else? Uh, I've gotten. Uh, Carol, did you want to say something? No. Okay. Uh, that's the thing about seeing these body movements. I. Oh, you're ready to talk? No, no. I'm scratching my head. So anyway, um, which we're not supposed to do. I know. So let's look at the, the one other thing here. Uh, I'm getting a little bit behind, but not not terribly. Uh, Starting at 2, 11, and 12, this is the resident alien passage. And, oh, you've got a person there. That's June. Is that June? Yeah. So, Mary. Uh, she likes that's to be on Mary. Screen. Okay. okay, good. So at 2, 11, and 12, um, this is also an image that has a lot of play in, in contemporary, or had con- play in contemporary Christianity in America for the last 25 or 30 years. So 211, behold, I urge you as aliens and exiles to abstain from the desires of the flesh that wage war against the soul. Conduct yourselves honorably among the Gentiles so that they may malign, so that though they malign you as evil evildoers, they may see your honorable deeds and glorify God when he comes to judge. Um, a popular image that is used today is to describe the church as resident exiles uh, or resident aliens. I mean, that's now an immigration term. But what that usually means is it acknowledges that we as Christians live in the world but we are in many ways alien to it. We're not fully at home in it, nor should we be fully at home in it, that we are resident aliens or resident exiles. Um, and what's interesting about this is this phrase is claimed proudly and used often um, 
really by people on the religious right and people on the religious left who, who will define themselves as, you know, I'm not fully in the world. I'm a resident alien, but, but to show the gap in, in the church, what makes them alien are usually entirely different issues. I mean, where, you know, where they disagree significantly with culture, if you're on the religious left, are usually more issues of, of poverty and inequality and, and social justice. And usually on the right, it's more, uh, you know, s- still remains uh, probably the, the most constant has been the, the abortion right to life issue and, you know, the acceptance of homosexuality. So, so it's interesting that people on both sides use this image and relate to this passage, but have different, different, have different things that they, um, they define themselves by. So the last thing I want to talk about is really hard. And that is this passage um, about uh, starting. It's, it's the household of God starting at 213 and going to 3-7. And I want to read parts of it, but but I'm sure that you noticed this if you did your reading. So I'll, I'll skip forward, and then I do want to, I want to offer a little bit about it and then have some discussion about it. But I want to leave enough time to get into the canon part in the next book, because I think it will address this. So starting at 2-13. For the Lord's sake, Accept the authority of every human institution, whether of the emperor as supreme or of governors as being sent by God or by Christ to punish those who do wrong and to praise those who do right. For it is God's will that by doing right, you should silence the ignorance of the foolish. The servants of God live as free people. Let do not let Yet do not use your freedom as a pretext for evil. Honor everyone, love the family of believers, fear God, and honor the emperor. Then, slaves, accept the authority of your masters with all deference. Not only those who are kind and gentle, but also those who are harsh. For it is to your credit, if being aware of God, you endure pain while suffering unjustly. If you endure when you are beaten for doing wrong, is there credit in that? But if you endure when you do right and suffer for it, you have God's approval. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you should follow in his steps. When he was abused, he did not return abuse. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but he entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. He himself, and we use this as an assurance of pardon, somewhat out of context. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that free from sins, we might live for righteousness, for by his wounds, we or you have been healed. Then down at Chapter 3, I guess starting at 1. All of this flows as one argument. Wives, in the same way, accept the authority of your husband, so that even if some of them do not obey the word, 
they may be won over without a word by their wives' conduct. When they see the purity and reverence of your lives, do not adorn yourself outwardly by braiding your hair or by wearing gold ornaments or fine clothing. Rather, let your ornament be the inner self with the lasting beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is very precious in God's sight. It was in this way long ago that the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by accepting the authority of their husbands. Thus Sarah obeyed Abraham and called him Lord. You have become her daughters as long as you do what is good and never let fears alarm you. Husbands in the same way show consideration for your wives in your life together, paying honor to the woman as the weaker sex, since they too are also heirs of the gracious gift of life so that nothing may hinder your prayers. Now, this is tough. Um, and I'm going to, I'm going to, you know, since I've got the power of muting, I'm going to give you, I want to make a few comments about this, some of which are written down here. Um, there's some current theological scholarship, namely by James Cone, who's African-American, that critiques the way the crucifixion has been used theologically and in history to urge people to continue to submit to abuse and used by abuse, abusers to justify their abuse. That would really go back to this first part of uh, of equating Christ as not fighting the crucifixion, and therefore we shouldn't either. And I, and I can say that that, uh, that that critique, I believe, to be legitimate. I mean, I, I think Cohn's scholarship in this uh, is really good. Uh, it's called The Cross and the Lynching Tree is, is the name of, of a book that he did about five years ago. Um, I, and, and secondly, I will say that I have seen these words used relative to domestic abuse and know that, that this kind of mistreatment exists in the household and it existed historically in the case of antebellum slavery. Um, and I assume that the above chapters are held up for clear indictment of this tendency to be used to justify slavery. I also want to say in this passage, or, or about these passages, that, um, and, and I'm not going to say much good about them other than I'll come around to the end and say how I think they might can function for our good. Uh, in 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 three above where it's talking about wives and it talks about let your adornment be the inner self with the lasting beauty of of a gentle and quiet spirit um i i frankly think that it is very difficult and not right to take one personality type um and to vault that as the norm for everyone, you know, male or female. I mean, I have certainly known 
females and females of earlier generations who have the lasting beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit. And there is absolutely nothing under the sun wrong with that. But I think for this author to, <clears throat> to sort of hold that up for the norm is just not, doesn't do justice to the diversity of human personality and, and to the diversity of gifts that people have. I also will say, frankly, that uh, that when this author then says, uh, you know, points to, to Sarah, Sarah obeyed Abraham and called him Lord. She did. You have thus become her daughters. Um, I don't think I would describe the biblical Sarah as someone with the lasting beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit based on the multiple times I've read that story. I mean, she told him, go get Hagar. And then she kicked Hagar out when Hagar gave birth. And she forced Abraham to to kick Hagar out again. And if my most recent reading of the sacrifice of Isaac story, uh, Sarah and Abraham never spoke to one another nor lived together after that incident. I think it's entirely possible that Sarah rejected Abraham or, or separated from him, you know, from after that. So I think to say that Sarah is a woman with a, you know, a gentle and quiet spirit is the author sort of reading onto Sarah an image that he has of what, of what women should be. Uh, the weaker sex is not an appropriate term, I don't think, um, period. So I'm, I'm not saying this to curry favor with people in the classroom, but I, I think it's interesting that in this lesson, not by design, we have a considerable eloquence about the value of words and about the harm that words can do. And we have a vaulted Christ and a vaulted people of God. And, and then at the same time, an author who, who I believe writes words that are, that are not only damaging in the present, but, but have been used in history for enormous and untold human suffering particularly in slavery and particularly by ministers, you know, by male ministers uh, counseling women in abusive relationships to stay in them because by their staying, there is a chance their husbands will see the light and be saved. I am sure that has happened some, but, but if, if I kept, if I did that, I would consider myself Engaging in clergy malpractice, period. Um, so, so what, so what we have here, what I have here as I read this in this wonderful section of the Bible that's not all that famous is, is a section that is, I think, potentially very hurtful and damaging to human history and to, and to human relationships. Um, where I handle that is, uh, and, and the last part here, which we haven't gotten to yet, is, um, 
talks about scripture and, and talks about what can be mistakes in scripture. If you look at, uh, it's at, uh, second Peter three, it's speaking of Paul's words, but, uh, so our beloved brother Paul wrote to you according to the wisdom given to him, speaking of this as he does in all of his letters. This is 314. There are some things in them hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do other scriptures. You therefore, beloved, since you beware that you're not carried away by the error of lawlessness. I actually think in Second Peter, this is an example of a writer saying, that some words need to be read very, very wisely. And, and, and I wouldn't even say they can be twisted because here, there, you don't have to twist them. I mean, almost. But I think it's interesting that we begin with the power of language and the danger of language and we end in second Peter with, Hey, even Paul got it wrong sometimes. And even Paul wrote things that were destructive or could be used destructively. And and I'll end by saying, and I want to give you all time to react to this. Um, again, I, I don't know why I'm going back to high school so much, but maybe it's because I'm so far away from it now. But I can remember, again, growing up in the South and, and always trying to, to say, well, why am I so different as a Presbyterian? A, a good friend of mine once found this passage that I just read in the Bible and came to me, he was supposed to be he said, look, isn't this great? It says in the Bible that uh, there are some things in the scriptures hard to understand, which can the ignorant can twist to their own destruction. And And we just found that liberating that in the Bible it said, hey, Paul may have been wrong in some of these things. So to me, that's this whole canonical thing of reading the Bible holistically, seeing it as a conversation with itself, and uh, and being led. I mean, what this passage that we've read about wives and slaves does to me shows me how easy it is for us to bring our preconceptions to our faith and use our faith to justify them including in things like roles of women and 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 being part of a system that is dependent on slavery. And and so you bring that and it twists your interpretation of the Sarah story and you end out using the Bible to justify something that that I don't think is in keeping with the rest of scripture. So I'm gonna shut up and just say, unmute yourself if you have anything that you'd like to say or add or argue with. Yes, Wayne. Yeah, um, so this is a question here. Uh, so when Paul says, as they do the other scriptures, it, it looks like uh, this is placing the same uh, level of authority. Is this an early endorsement of, of Paul's writings? Is I guess you could say part of the canon? Well, it's an it's an acknowledgement that Paul's writings are in the canon, yes. But I think what it's saying is that, hey, there were things Paul said that I'm sure he was writing out of his wisdom, but at least that others have twisted towards destruction. And the phrase is added, and other scriptures as well. 
it's not just Paul's writings that that's been said about. It's been said about any scripture, I think. And if you read what James says about words, oh, maybe that's what he's talking about. Words can be used to curse, and they are. I mean, I've told you all I've had, well, I've said it. I know that there are pastors that counsel women to go back to their abusive husbands. That that's their role, that's their job, and hopefully their husbands will be saved through their their sticking with them. Yeah, that's the point. What I just thought was interesting, because I like to go into the details, it, it, it just seems like to me that even at that early stage, that early date, the the believers already thought that Paul's, the, the letters of Paul were part of the story. Correct, correct. Yes, that's correct, Wayne. That's a good point. So I think we ought to hear from women on this. Are there any women that will take? Yes, Janet. Several weeks I've wanted to say this, but this is an opportunity somehow. Um, I feel that we cannot, as 21st century Americans, go pick apart every word in the Bible and get upset because it doesn't fit our culture today. Right. And that in this particular case, if we can push away our reaction to the woman must serve the man ideas and look at the bigger picture that he's saying, do not do evil, but do good. Then that's the message we can take from this without being so upset with the Bible. Yeah. I I agree with that, Janet. I agree with that. Because that is a way of saying, I mean, our own preconceptions are equally time-bound. You know, I mean, we bring our preconceptions too, and, and they're not necessarily universal. I think the message you're getting from this, the essential message is, is true. But I, but I also think you're saying it is free to say, no, I don't have to view myself as the weaker sex. I don't have to, to do some of the prescriptions. I think you're saying that, that if we get the message out of it, we, we're free to, not be slavish, slavish to the details. I hope you're saying that. I, I would not, knowing you, I would not describe you as a member of the weaker sex. Okay. <laughs> I just, you know, it's, I know you too well. I agree with what you just said. Thank you. Okay. <laughs> I'm glad because you're strong. Anybody else on this? Dana, anybody? Women have not been told to be silent in church. Come on, come on. Well, of course, I, I mean, I've said it before. I, I, I mean, I'm what? I can't imagine these words coming from Jesus. Yeah, I think that's fair. And as a Christian, my faith is in 
in Jesus and Jesus's teaching. And um, I wish that I could feel as as Janet does that in this day and age we have a different view. I think we have a different uh, maybe maybe people aren't as upfront. And then on the I look at the news and I and I'm wondering if that's even true, but. I really can't say any more than to say that the way I can have belief is because I can't imagine these words coming from Jesus. They're extraordinarily hurtful. Yeah. But Larry, Judith, so let me ask a question about that because, you know, Dana and I have had many conversations about, you know, would Jesus have said something or, you know, would this have come from Jesus? So early on in the class, I asked you if we should give more weight to yeah. the in the Bible that Jesus said, as opposed to some of these other things. And you said, no. Yeah. But in reality saying, well, the, I can't imagine this coming from Jesus. The implication there is therefore, you know, it probably doesn't have as much weight as if it had come from Jesus. Is that the case? Yeah, I, it's, I always have to watch what I say because I know I'll be quoted back by people who remember. <laughs> okay. Um, I want to take both of your comments and questions and, and try to answer it in, in a way that I hope is, is not dodging because it's not dodging. Um, I, I think both of you are saying, I think the question in Dana's comment is, is saying a, in a somewhat simplified fashion what I would argue for. And that is, um, when you, that it's important to read a text through the eyes of your faith as you have, have gotten your faith from the whole Bible of which for Christianity, Jesus is more than central. So to say, would Jesus have said this? I don't think Jesus would have said it. And I don't think it is in the spirit of what Jesus was about. And so that that is, I mean, that is a very legitimate way of saying, you know, I'm going to go with what Jesus says. Okay, but the the only nuance I'm giving to that and why I probably answered your question no initially is that I feel one of my jobs is to is to hold up the whole canon and say it's really important to read and wrestle with everything in the canon. Um because I think our lives are richer. I mean, you, you refer to having taught Shakespeare or being a fan of Shakespeare. If you're, if you're truly a Shakespearean, you need to read the stuff in Shakespeare that you don't like as well, but you don't have to like it. <laughs> okay. You don't have to read it and say, you know, as you might say in the New Testament, go therefore and do likewise. And, and so that's, that's at a little bit more nuanced level than than what I'm saying to both of you all. Uh, Larry, this is Carol. Yeah, hey Carol. I don't mean to cut you off, I'm sorry, did I? Um 
No, you're fine. I just think there's a distinction in the writing of everything, especially a book. This is the most important book, the Old and New Testament that's ever been, about reflecting what is historical or happening in a society at any particular point. But there's a difference between that and endorsing it. And that this this is the way it should be. And it seems like that's what Paul did. And it seems like that's what is happening here again. And I think that's what's so concerning. It's an endorsement that this is okay. This is acceptable. Maybe it's not what we would like, you know, ideally, but this is fine. And it's endorsing it and telling it to continue. And that's, I think, what's really most problematic about it. Um, Yeah, and I, I hope you're not taking what I'm saying as endorsing it. No, not you, but I think that's what's troubling about it, is that it's endorsing it. It's just not saying, look, this is what has emerged. It's endorsing it as being... Right. Acceptable. And, um, you know, um, this, and I always, I'm much, much better versed and understandable about the U.S. Constitution than I am about the Bible. (laughs) (laughs) Um, and one thing that's so great about the Constitution, and maybe this was reflecting of the, uh, the, the, um, the people, the men who wrote it, was that it, it, and some of them who owned slaves, as we know, and felt comfortable with it, yet they made the words ambiguous enough and useful enough 200 years later that they didn't endorse the behavior um, that they were actually, some of them like Thomas Jefferson, engaged in. And I find that fascinating. The differences yeah. between the two documents, I find actually pretty fascinating and maybe reflective of, of an evolutionary process. So maybe when the next great document is written, <laughs> it will actually expressly condemn them. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I think, uh, again, this is, there are passages we have read today that, that would appropriately call this into question. I mean, historically, this, the literal words about wives and the literal words about slaves have, have done enormous damage in the way they have been used for centuries, particularly, well, both. I mean, we can argue whether it's slaves or, or women. It's, 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 and and what I think that is, is people who have a predisposition to view women as weaker and men as superior and men as having rights over women who then see religious justification for that in this. Or people who grew up in slave societies, which the bulk of human history grew up in, and and then see, sort of think, yeah, that's the way it's supposed to be and and, and, and this language allows me, you know, to justify not only what I'm doing, but to, but to, but to keep it going. And I think if, I think to be really true to that, it leads us to ask the question of what things might we be assuming or believing 
that we are taking to our religion, to the book of our religion, and finding justification there, and that we just might be wrong about. You know, because there are things we're wrong about today that don't even occur to us. (laughs) That if we survive this coronavirus... You know, a thousand years, the archaeologists are going to give up, give up, and they're going to snicker at what we believed, just like we snicker at what some of our ancestors believed, or we're we're grossly offended. Like the terrible economic inequities, and who knows? <laughs> who knows? Hopefully, um, not too long from now. Who knows what it is? But, but if oh, it, it it will be that Miami's underwater. Yeah. <laughs> Who knows? I mean, I don't look yeah. at these fools. How did they not know that Miami well, was going to be underwater? <laughs> so anyway, we are two minutes over time. And I know that everybody is very busy and have places that they have to rush off to, like dinner parties and neighbors and, you know, <laughs> getting ready to go to work tomorrow and getting ready for your long commute. So. Uh, I'm enjoying this. I hope it has been helpful. You are amazingly uh, great in your attendance uh, and just your participation. So keep after it. Next week we have 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, which is pretty much, I think, pretty lovely reading most of the time. I think. I haven't looked at them in a while, but it's a lot about love. And uh, then we have Revelation. So I'm going to send you both of those lessons. So that if you happen to have a free time when you're riding the bus to, this week, you might uh, start reading Revelation. So let's let's pray and call it a night. So, dear God, I do give you thanks for this class and just for truly the ability to see the faces of, of members and friends at Westminster. Uh, be with us as we wrestle with these issues. And most of all, be with us as the way we treat one another. In your holy name we pray. Amen. I, I do want to say one other thing that I meant to, to say earlier. Many of you all know Steve Carrick, who, who was in this class and, and has been in the classes before and is the man that had jaw cancer, sort of the bit bearded guy that at the end of last year developed jaw cancer. He, he has struggled and is not, uh, and is not doing well. Uh, Marjorie Phillips is his wife who was in the class a couple of years ago and he was in it. He continued this year, but, um, just be, they have a very good attitude and, and, but just keep him and them in your prayers and be aware that, that this is, uh, it was a brutal cancer and none of the treatments have really worked. So he's, he's not doing, doing well. So lift him in your prayers and, uh, they very much appreciated the, He's at Carol's table and Meredith and Robbins and sort of the one man at this all woman table, which he loved, but he's really appreciated the support you all give him too. So take care, everybody. And see you next week. Okay. Bye-bye.